This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can you believe how fast this year is flying by? What's something you're proud of so far in 2024? What's something you still want to accomplish? When life goes this quickly, it's important to take a moment to celebrate your wins and to look forward to what's coming up next. Therapy can actually help you take stock of that progress and to set achievable goals for the future. There are many benefits to therapy no matter what stage of life you're in. It provides a safe space to express thoughts and emotions. It fosters personal growth and helps you explore your goals and values as you look at the remainder of your year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's easy, completely online, and designed to fit your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Rise and Fall today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Rise and Fall. Before we start today's show, a quick warning. This episode deals with issues of sexuality, masculinity, and it includes some frank discussion. As we have on previous episodes, we're censoring any swearing, but given the content as a whole, if you're listening with kids, you may want to pre-screen this first. It's Sunday, January 28, 2001, and Mark Driscoll is at the pulpit giving announcements before his sermon encourage you to join us for that at 6.30. And lastly, for the men that regularly attend this church next Saturday at 10 a.m., we're going to get together over at the Paradox. We'd encourage you to be there. We have a little chit-chat we need to have. So, John chapter 6, uh, where we went last week, I'll get you up That chit-chat he mentions there at the end had been planned for a while. It was first announced on January 10th on an internal message board the church had called Midrash, and the build-up online felt ominous. The original announcement read, in part, we will convene Saturday, February 3rd at 10.11. Only men are welcome. At 10.11, the door will be locked and all late men will be sent away. We will have a large and private conversation. You do not want to miss. We will not be charging that we may take a payment out of your hide. Bring your Bible, paper, and a pen. Anyone who brings a promise keeper's book should also bring a cup and some headgear. Chat boards in the late 90s and early 2000s were kind of the Wild West, including this one. They were unmoderated, unfiltered, and most of the posters wrote under pseudonyms, including this one. His name was William Wallace II. A few days later, he posted again. Make sure to save the date. We will not have any food. We will not have any heat. We will not have any band. We do not have any name. We do not have any t-shirts. We do not have any bracelets. We do not have any psychologists. If you are late, we may only let you in after a cavity search and force you to wear a dress. A few days later, Mark Driscoll posted, under his name, encouraging the ladies to pray and the men to make it a priority. He wrote, To the guys who are whining, gossiping, grumbling, and continuing their male lesbian tendencies, if I am your pastor, you are hereby ordered to attend. On the 31st, Driscoll wrote simply, No snacks, no heat, no band. Then... On the 2nd, Wallace posted, I'm offline until tomorrow when we hold a funeral and bury the put nation thread after our manly fight club. If you're familiar at all with the Mars Hill story, or if you've dug around online, you likely have already heard of William Wallace II. Driscoll himself mentions him in his 2006 book, but it wasn't until July of 2014 that he became notorious. 
when someone dug up the old Midrash threads and shared them with several bloggers who regularly covered the Mars Hill and Driscoll Beat. They were big news. Wallace was larger than life, absurdist really, posting comments that were variously homophobic, misogynistic, demeaning, degrading, and just inexcusably awful. You could fill an episode of this podcast with a litany of them. And like I said, they're everywhere online, and if you search around, you'll see I'm not exaggerating. I'm not sure it's that helpful to all of our listeners, though, for me to read through a bunch of the worst of them here. So I'll leave it up to you how deep down that rabbit hole you want to go. And if you're listening and thinking that one unhinged commenter isn't really news, you'd be exactly right. Except that behind the pen name William Wallace II was none other than Mark Driscoll. Was I chasing From Christianity Today, this is Mike Cosper, and you're listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's the story of one church that grew from a handful of people to a movement and then collapsed almost overnight. It's a story about power, fame, and spiritual trauma, problems faced across the spectrum of churches in America. And yet, it's also a story about the mystery of God working in broken places. Today on the podcast, episode four, I am Jack's Raging Bile Duct. In a story from the New York Times Magazine in 2009, Molly Worthen noted that the favorite movie of Mars Hill members wasn't Amazing Grace or The Chronicles of Narnia. It was Fight Club. And Fight Club is a great reference point for what worked about Mars Hill and for the particular kind of appeal Mark Driscoll had for young men. I'm fine with Fight Club. I'm not fine with Oprah. You know what I'm saying? That's how I live. That's how I work. I always tell people, I'm Irish. We have two emotions, pissed off and asleep. That's our spectrum. In the film, the narrator... Played by Edward Norton, is a frustrated white-collar guy whose life consists of working a miserable job and shopping in Ikea catalogs. Then he happens to meet Brad Pitt's Tyler Durden, a soap salesman and an unhinged spirit, and they launch into a progressively more violent and destructive path. The whole thing's meant to be an expression of the discontent of Generation X with the world they've inherited. And Tyler is a prophetic agent of chaos, calling out the misery that Norton's character wants to ignore. He tells him, advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. We're the middle children of history, no purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. We're slowly learning that fact, and we're very, very pissed off. Mark Driscoll spoke directly to that ethos. You don't know what it means to be a man, so you let marketing and advertising define masculinity, and you think if you buy the right things, then you're a man. And it's all about consuming, as if being a man was defined by 
how much meat you can shove through your colon and how many beers you can pound and how fast you can drive and how stinky you can fart and how far you can spit and how loud you can belch and whose name's on your underwear and how big the mud flaps are on your truck. The common thread between Fight Club and Mars Hill was a deep dissatisfaction with the status quo. But where Tyler Durden wanted you to embrace nihilism and risk and pain to feel alive, Driscoll challenged men to get good jobs, marry young, buy a house, and have lots of kids. In a city as progressive as Seattle, these traditional values were a punk rock ethic all their own. And so many of the key leaders of Mars Hill followed exactly that path, starting from a place of real uncertainty and finding their calling as Christians and leaders through the message of the church. There are a ton of young men that were called to step up, to repent of their sin, and to follow Jesus boldly, however that they were able. This is Tim Smith again. Whether that's in vocational ministry or or whether that's in uh, other ways. And there are a ton of men, myself included, that who knows where they would be uh, or what they would be up to. It's not that we weren't about young women, but we said what Mark said all the time is that most of the problems in the world are caused by young men. And they're caused by young men that don't have a clear vision of, of who they are or who they're supposed to be. And Jesus gives them that. But looking back at the same time, it's, it was a mixed bag, too. Mars Hill, I mean, obviously Mark Driscoll, there's nobody more influential or kind of central. But, you know, there's it's not monolithic. There were people that, that lived these things out really, really well, and there were people that lived them out really poorly. This is Aaron Gray, who you heard from on our first episode. He was on staff from 2011 to 2014, and he saw this mixed bag up close, particularly in the Ministry of Redemption groups. These were intensive small groups where you were meant to deal with ingrained issues of sin or pain from your past. And they were often places where marital conflicts, sexual addictions, or authority issues in the home would be drawn out and confronted by the leaders. I worked uh, as a season as one of the, the leaders in that ministry, but from campus to campus, you would see it play out wildly differently. Some people seem to have really just, you know, wisdom and skills on how to do it. Other people, I mean, they there was this language like, well, it's time to go to time to go to re- redemption group again and time to go get kicked in the balls again. Like and that was just the language that people would use. Like it was this weekly bludgeoning that we're going to go, you know, get bludgeoned for Jesus. Like um yeah, they became a caricature. So instead of a a loving word of confrontation, it was a baseball bat to the knee. I think that Mark didn't care. This is Wendy Alsop again. I think in some sense, and probably for all of us, our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. And so Mark's strength was a boldness. And if he offended you with truth, he didn't care. He also didn't care if he offended you with, you know, sinning against you by making fun of you. But if you could listen through it and not be offended by his manner of teaching, he did have a gift for teaching the word. And I'll, I'll never forget the first Christmas we were there. <laughs> One of his Sunday sermons was, ho, 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 Merry Christmas. H-O, 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 Merry Christmas. Well, it was about the three whores in Jesus's lineage. And so he had this like very offensive way. I still think it's funny. Very offensive way that he's talking about this thing. But then at the same time, He really presented how the lineage of Jesus specifically includes these women that had stories that we would all be embarrassed of. They would be embarrassed of back in that day. They were not the beautiful stories. And um, it ended up being 
you know, like he, he pokes you in the eye with the sermon title, but the actual content of the sermon was very life-giving. It wasn't misogynist. It was, um, which I do believe Mark definitely had a misogyny problem. But in this particular instance, I just remember the sermon title got my attention, but the content of it was actually eye-opening. Wendy's talking about Mark, the preacher and pastor, not the William Wallace character. But the appreciation for Mark's edge that she's expressing is typical of folks who were part of Mars Hill. They liked his boldness, his willingness to search for where the line was between provocative and offensive, and his willingness to push language and culture and metaphors in new places in an effort to connect people to a different way of talking about Christianity. He would often say that his biggest influences as a preacher were people like Chris Rock, and the shock jock approach in his preaching certainly reflected that. And it's worth noting that Rock, in 2019, complained that the politics of the present day have made a lot of his jokes off-limits. At an awards ceremony in 2019, he said from the stage, If it was five years ago, I could say something real funny and offensive right now, but I can't do that anymore. Those cultural shifts are worthy of consideration when we assess the offensiveness of some of Driscoll's comments. Not the William Wallace stuff, which was really always out of bounds, but the edgy stuff in his preaching and teaching. The norms have changed a lot since the late 90s and early 2000s. Shock jock stuff from Howard Stern or Adam Carolla, or stand-ups like Bill Hicks, Dave Attell, and Chris Rock. Many of their jokes from the time would get them in massive hot water today. Sitcoms like 30 Rock, The Office, and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia have removed shows from streaming services for jokes that are now out of bounds, and their creators have issued apologies for them. To be clear, my point isn't to provide a justification for Mark's jokes or commentary. But it's important to properly situate it within the norms of comedy and entertainment at the time, which is the world he drew from for his approach and style. Whether or not a pastor is wise in making that the pool he swims in for content is a different question altogether. As for the William Wallace character, I think we can look at Fight Club to understand what Mark was attempting to do with him. In a way, he's Tyler Durden to Mars Hill's Young Men Online, an over-the-top agent of chaos, stirring trouble and provoking. And while we read those comments from a distance and with no small amount of shock and horror, those who were there when it all happened saw it very differently and never saw it as something to take literally or seriously. Here's Jeff Betker, who was part of the church in a variety of roles from 1997 to 2013. I was able to like justify in my head the hyperbole he used on, on the internet with the like William Wallace crap, which now looking back when I saw that, when it got exposed again, I was like, Oh my gosh, I remember him saying those. And at the time, me and my friends would, were laughing because we thought it was ridiculous. And he was, we didn't know it was him until he said it was him, like the story goes. But um, we did know that this guy was at our church. But yet at the same time, in the church forum, when this stuff's happening, and he's saying all the chauvinistic, sexist nonsense, we took little bits and pieces of the points that he had been preaching and talking about gender roles and like men being men and owning stuff and valuing women more. So we took it as hyperbole and it allowed us to like justify Mark essentially. And like when he came out with it, we're like, oh my gosh, he's the one who said that. Oh, that figures. Yeah. He's just using that hyperbolic stuff that he always does and being ridiculous. That's, that's funny that it was him. So we just thought it was like punk rock of him. Like to, you know, I think I took it with a grain of salt and thought it was, funny and now i'm like disgusted that i would even do that like in hindsight when i read those things that he said and i know what happened and sort of see it i'm like 
why did I even not question this stuff? And why did I think of it in my own way as storytelling and hyperbole and like, you know, I mean, and I think it partly was, but I also think that it speaks for something larger and sicker. Paul Petrie was around back then too. And like Jeff, at the time, he didn't see the William Wallace stuff as something to take seriously. He saw it as a kind of over-the-top effort to get people's attention. I don't want to make light of some things that people would have found offense, but I think, at least I did, I saw a lot of the bombast as sort of being a sort of tongue-in-cheek, if you will, a lot of it. And some people got so offended by it, you know? And a lot of times, I just felt like the people that got so offended by it probably needed to get offended, you know, get get sort of shaken out of their comfort zone a little bit, because the church can be a pretty fake and phony place, you know, and sort of false piety, if you will. And Mark was shaking that tree really hard. And I I think for a lot of us, we, a lot of things that he said, um, you know, some of it you would laugh at, and some of it you just thought, well, it's it's all done sort of tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but some people took it extremely seriously and, you know, got offended. I would say most of us didn't really see it that way, that, you know, we, we, saw, it, we saw that he was saying some things that needed to be said. And if he had couched it all in real sort of Christianese, it wouldn't have had the impact that it had. You know, let's face it, a lot of guys took notice, and a lot of guys did uh, step up, if you will. At the time, that was new. Nowadays, you got everybody, you got pastors all over the country that are, you know, they've got their men's ministries like it's something new and unusual. But at that time, it was new and unusual. Nobody else was doing it. Which brings us back to that Saturday morning, February 3rd, 2001. The men's meeting that Driscoll and Driscoll as Wallace had been hyping online. In Confessions of a Reformation Rev, he wrote about calling the meeting after taking on the Wallace character, fighting with people who were advocating liberal and feminist ideas, and generally trying to stir the pot online. He wrote, It got insane, and thousands of posts were being made each day until it was discovered that it was me raging like a madman under the guise of a movie character. One guy got so mad that he actually showed up at my house to fight me one night around 3 a.m., Things were starting to get out of hand with the men, so I called a meeting and demanded that all of the men in our church attend. Jeff Becker was there. I had heard that there's this men's meeting that Mark's, you know, sick of it. And so I was curious, huh, I wonder what he's going to say. And so when we get there, it was all solemn and dark. and But it was basically then him, like, pretty much yelling at us. Here's how Driscoll describes it in the book. I preached for more than two hours about manhood, and basically gave the dad talk to my men for looking at porno, sleeping with young women, not serving Christ, not working hard at their jobs, and so on. I demanded that the men who were with me on our mission to change the city stay, and that the rest leave the church and stop getting in the way, because you can't charge hell with your pants around your ankles, a bottle of lotion in one hand, and a Kleenex in the other. That was the first time I really sort of heard some of the uh, things that later became sort of staples. But even at that time, I remember thinking the, the motivation was for me to find a way to take care of my family, right? The motivation, I, I think I was, yeah, I was newly married. Joel Brown was there as well. And you walk in and they hand you these rocks and they're like, we're giving you your stones back. And then Mark yelled at us for an hour or two and we went home. <laughs> I do think that there were a lot of positive things that came out of that. I think for me as a young man, 
I probably could have gone a lot of different ways when it came to taking on responsibility, seeing women as not just like objects or seeing women as lesser than, but seeing women as those who we needed to uh, protect and to honor and respect and all these kinds of things. I think those were big values for me. It was intense because it was not what we were expecting, you know, from a church meeting, for men, you're usually expecting sort of like a conversation or like a, how can we help, you know, something more positive and affirming, I guess. And it wasn't, it was very, it was very intense. As Mark recounts though, and as a lot of others have affirmed to me, it was kind of a turning point in the life of the church, a big wake-up call. If William Wallace had been an absurdist approach to calling men to action, this had been the pastor-prophet approach. And it worked and was kind of the model for Mark moving forward. Jessica Johnson is an anthropologist and scholar of religion at William & Mary, and she's the author of a book about Mars Hill called Biblical Porn, Affect, Labor, and Pastor Mark Driscoll's Evangelical Empire. This infamous Saturday morning came up in her research. I had similar experiences when I talked to men about that particular event and how pivotal it was to their real engagement within the church. You know, um, that whole language of manning up, you know, that that was that was a pivotal event for them. Um, and when they really decided that this was the right church and they were going to really invest in it. Um, so that definitely is true. I think, you know, again, it's something I talk about in my book. It was something I was reading about at the time. There was this language being used about a masculinity crisis in the United States. Men, they were looking for a purpose, something that would sort of integrate family, their role in family, their role as providers, their drive to be responsible. And, you know, this was very attractive to younger men. They spoke to how they wanted to be in this kind of fraternity with other guys, or in the language at that time, the other dudes. This was a very kind of masculine-driven, we're going to man up and be men and provide for our families and get the jobs that we need and serve our church and, and take care and protect our wives and that sort of thing. And I think that was a positive for a lot of the men that I spoke to, just having that sense of purpose and having that sense of connection to other men in that purpose. It wasn't just men who bought into that vision. Many women were drawn in as well to the sense of certainty that came with Mark's leadership and found the picture of marriage and family he described compelling. People like Jen Smith. I kind of cheered him on. Like, yes, there are these men, men need to be held accountable for their actions and response, take, take the responsibility for, for their homes. It's what I um, kind of hoped for in my, in my husband who at the time was quite passive in, in the way that he responded. And, and I needed, I, I thought I needed a man to kind of put me in my place, but it was interesting because it took the pressure off of women. And in some ways, that was kind of the point. The emphasis on empowering men, on creating a masculine culture, it was meant to take the pressure off women. It was really hard on men, and they would be saddled, burdened with the responsibility of you are responsible for the spiritual health and tone of everybody in your home. In, in one way, it took the responsibility off of women 
which we should have had, but it also um, erased our own dignity and humanity. And I didn't see that at the time. I want to mention that in an upcoming episode, we're going to dig much deeper into the experiences of women at Mars Hill and the way that sex was a key part of the church's messaging and appeal. What Jen is saying here, though, reveals an important aspect of the issue of masculinity at the church. The way the church taught headship in the home, meaning that husbands were the leaders of their wives and family, is part of that mixed bag that Tim Smith mentioned earlier. Many women experienced it as suffocating and controlling, or infantilizing even. But others found comfort in it, as many women who believe in a complementarian vision of marriage do. For the men at Mars Hill, the message was an unambiguous call to take on the burden of responsibility for the soul care of their wives and children. Where Fight Club appealed to young men by inviting them to break free of the status quo and embrace a testosterone-fueled kind of nihilism, Driscoll's invitation was a testosterone-fueled vision of pastoral and marital responsibility. Men were to be warriors for God, so they attended theological fight clubs. The ministries of the church were described as air war and ground war. They didn't go away from men's retreats because real men don't retreat from battle. They went away to men's advances. They had a sense that they were giving their lives away to a war worth fighting and that they were being shaped and tested in the process. What I want at Mars Hill is men. I'm going to say it as clean, as plain as I can. Did I say I don't want women and children? That's not what I said. But women and children with men who abandon or abuse or avoid, that's not nice for women. Ask a single mother how nice it was that the man abandoned his obligations. Ask a woman who's getting beaten by her husband how much she would like someone to be stronger than him and to give him the truth. See, I think the nicest thing we can do for women, the nicest thing we can do for children is to make sure that the men are like Christ in a good way, in a loving, dying, serving way. Men received that call as a call to a fight, a good fight, a meaningful fight. And so they showed up at church of all places and they said, like Tyler Durden, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. As a part of that mission, Where You're From is a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us on each episode as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offers us important perspectives worth thinking about. To see our list of guests, visit whereyou'refrom.org today. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. I'm Russell Berry reminding you that it's not just about where you're at, but it's also about where you're from. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, 
It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. As we've looked at previously, there's a tendency in big churches to establish their DNA around the personalities of their pastors, and Mars Hill is no exception. You really can't separate the masculine ethos of the church from the personality of Mark himself. Its formation as part of the culture of the church came in part through his preaching and teaching, but just as importantly, and maybe more importantly, it came through the story he told about who he was and where he came from. In politics, academia, religion, even inside families, the stories that get told and retold inside that group form the core of its identity. They create the basis of authority for leaders, and they communicate aspirationally what a group who lives into that story or follows that leader can become. As Grant Morrison put it, we live in the stories we tell ourselves. Driscoll seemed to know this, as evidenced by how often he told his story at Mars Hill. Just about every person I talked to can retell it, beat by beat, and it always begins with his origins in a world that demanded masculine strength. In my neighborhood, my dad hung drywall every day to provide for the family. If you've ever hung drywall, it's work. It's significant work. To the point where uh, a few years ago, my dad broke his back hanging drywall and had to give up drywall because he literally severed his back. And my dad, when I was little, I remember him telling me, this is a rough neighborhood. You look out for your brothers. You look out for your sisters. If I'm gone, you take care of the family. You had to in my neighborhood. Uh, There was kids who were thugs or mean. They carried guns. They shot out one of the cars in front of our house in a drive-by. All kinds of stuff. You have knives, guns pulled on you all the time. So if you're going to be a big brother in that neighborhood, you have got to be tough. And so I kind of turned into a bit of a street brawler and kind of the protector of my brothers and my sisters. And uh, this is the way I think the world works. By all accounts, Mark's childhood was filled with violence. And according to many who knew him more personally, it was more violent than he'd let on in contexts like this. Though he would occasionally hint at it, both talking about his own propensity towards anger and fighting, and in the suffering he may have endured as well. Before being a Christian, I was not a naturally loving guy. I had been lied to, cheated on, abused, taken advantage of, and jacked with... So many times, I didn't trust anybody, and I certainly wasn't going to give my heart to anyone because I'd learned the hard way, you're just going to get taken advantage of. So I tended to be a very violent, angry, bitter person uh, to the degree I fought a lot of guys and put a handful in the hospital. I was that guy. I didn't get most huggable in high school. I wasn't that guy at all. Despite that background, and despite the rebellious image he liked to project, he was actually a driven achiever. Maybe not most huggable, but captain of the baseball team, president of his high school class, and voted most likely to succeed. He was the first in his family to attend college, in part because of academic scholarships. The Driscoll family was Catholic, and Mark even served as an altar boy for a while. But by his account, his actual faith was nominal at best, and abandoned altogether after his grandfather died when he was 10. His conversion to Christianity came about as a result of his relationship with Grace Martin, now Grace Driscoll, the daughter of a preacher. 
They started dating their junior year of high school, and she knew he wasn't a Christian, so she gave him a Bible as a gift. It wasn't until a few years later, though, when he'd gone off to college at Washington State, that he came to faith. That conversion story is also a big part of the Mars Hill mythology. In his book, Real Marriage, he wrote that he'd never heard a gospel presentation and that no one led him to Christ. He became a Christian when he opened that Bible for the first time. Here he is telling the story at Southeastern Seminary in 2009. And up until this point, to be honest with you, I had really no interest in Jesus and no interest in the Bible, but she had given me this very nice Bible with my name stamped on the front. And uh, so I began reading it, and I, I remember sitting on my bed in my dormitory reading Romans 1, and it says, And you are called from among those to belong to Jesus Christ. And I remember the Spirit of God absolutely flipping a switch in me, and I believe that is when God regenerated me. Shortly after that, he had another experience that would shape his life in the coming years. This was also a story that he told often. And so I was at this men's retreat, and God spoke to me and told me to preach the Bible, train men, plant churches, and marry grace. Told me exactly what to do. And so I've been doing that ever since, uh, to the best of my ability by God's grace. As the story goes, Mark's entry into church after his conversion was a rude awakening. He couldn't identify with anything about the culture of the church, especially the men. I went looking for a church, and a few of the first churches I went to were just completely uncomfortable. It was like walking into Victoria's Secret. Uh, the decor, at first, it's like fuchsia and baby blue, and there's pink, and it's just like, what in the world has happened here? Um, and then the songs are very emotive, and it's like love songs to Jesus, like we're on our prom together or something. And then the guy preaches, and he's crying and all this stuff and trying to appeal to my emotions. And I was just like, this didn't work. So I kept looking for a church, so I found a church where the guy got up, and he said, this week I was out bow hunting. Use that as an illustration. So I became a member of that church. <laughs> True story. I didn't have any theological convictions, but if a guy killed things, then I could, he could be my pastor. At Mars Hill then, Mark would turn the tables on this. Reaching men would be the priority, believing that there would be a cascading effect into families and into the city as a whole when they took the lead. Taken together, I think all of this accounts for the founding mythology of Mars Hill, in much the same way as Bill Hybels' origin story created the founding myth of Willow Creek. Hybels would talk about leaving the family business for ministry and selling tomatoes door-to-door to raise the money to plant the church. For Mark, the story begins in the rough world of his childhood. Then, while reading the Bible Grace gave him when they were dating, he comes to faith. Shortly after that comes the call to ministry, and then he enters the church and finds it to be repulsively feminine, which motivates him all the more to pioneer something different. I also think the limited set of characters in this story is an important factor. While other pastors would show up in Mark's storytelling from time to time as either encouragers or disciplers, when it comes to Mark's vision, calling, and purpose, they're all revealed in that intimate circle of Mark, Grace, God, and the Bible. And that solitary origin has implications down the line, particularly in the way Mark would respond to other potential sources of authority and accountability. As it turns out, you can justify almost anything if, like Elwood Blues, you believe you're on a mission from God. The whole thing is kind of a hero's journey, too. He's raised in the obscurity of a harsh place, sent away to the wilderness where he finds God and a purpose for his life, and then he returns to Seattle as a fiery prophet, ready to build a new kingdom. For Hybels, by creating an image of himself as an elite businessman, he gained credibility with men and women in the Chicago suburbs, whose inclination was more toward the marketplace than the church. The story centered him as the rightful leader of a multi-million dollar bureaucracy, but it also established a critical kind of authority. 
Driscoll's origin story also establishes his authority, not as a business leader, but as a man's man in a church that's dominated by womanly sensibilities. Both present themselves as outliers and outsiders, too, whose gifts and temperament could have led them to all kinds of successes elsewhere. And that narrative fed a spirit in the community that was not unlike that of the crowd stuffing bread in the jar of the piano man, yelling, man, what is he doing here? Both men also shared the ethos of missional entrepreneurship, a sense that their innovations, which were really their personalities, could cure what ailed the church in their time. Here's sociologist of religion, Gerardo Marti, again. The entrepreneurial sense of the leader who is establishing a faith community that could speak to the issues of the day means that you're going to have a more personal approach to that charisma. It's going to be a particular person who's going to be able to share their experiences as well as their thinking, their orientation, in order to draw together a circle, a community. For Mark, then, channeling that charisma through the lens of masculinity works on several levels. At its most basic, it taps into something deep in the heart of men, the longing that every man has to know that he's living up to what it means to be a man. It also empowered the church's ability to envision itself in an us-versus-them posture regarding the world around them. As Marty puts it, the emphasis on masculinity tapped into deep, underlying attitudes about leadership that have long been central to evangelicalism. And these strengthened Mark's aura of authority. Being able to stand and define masculinity is going to be inherent to standing up for these kinds of messages, to be able to hold back against the forces of evil or the forces uh, that are threatening, uh, and to be able to then bolster uh, the sense of who they are. And masculinity is not really a shared characteristic. Masculinity, as it is practiced, is an I am a man. I am the man, which further bolsters charismatic credibility. So the more a person can exude and assert a masculinity centered around their message in the face of all these controversies and contentions, the more it further bolsters their their celebrity status. At first glance, this seems counterintuitive. You would think that a hyper-masculine pastor planting a conservative evangelical church in one of the most progressive cities in the country was a recipe for disaster. But what Marty is saying is that precisely the opposite is true. The ability of Mark to define Christian masculinity, to even embody it in himself, created a powerful base of authority from which he could gather and lead a community. When conflicts later arose around questions of gender, sexuality, church governance, and culture, one would expect that these would erode that base. But in fact, for many, maybe for most, it was the opposite. The criticism and attacks from the outside were to be expected, because the church had already defined itself as an aggressive, countercultural force. And since the identity of the church had been bound up in the personality of Mark Driscoll, an attack on him felt like an attack on you. And so the masculine vision of the church not only served to attract and empower young men, it was self-reinforcing, keeping Mark at its center when trouble and conflict came. Some of this analysis probably feels pretty cold, but it's crucial to remember that as things unfolded at the church, as its leaders, not just Mark, taught this message, it was profoundly transformative in ways that many men, even with the benefit of hindsight or the pain of wounds, still appreciate to this day. Here's Joel Brown again. I remember Mark would often say things like, a young man is like a truck. He drives straighter when he's got weight in the bed. And and that really resonated with me. I was like, 
you know, very active, busy young guy. And I think it, it inspired me and encouraged me to get married at a young age and to just jump into it, to take a step forward in starting a family and things like that. But also seeing all of that as connected to my faith, you know. In those early years, Mark wasn't just a critic in the stands, though, heaping scorn on young men. He was investing in guys like Joel, inviting him in particular to take on various roles, as a volunteer, then an intern, and eventually as a staff member and a pastor. Tim Smith's experience was similar. In 1998, he was working at a church in St. Louis, but he was originally from Portland, and he and his wife both missed the Pacific Northwest. When he attended an event put on by the Young Leaders Network, he met Mark, and he began to feel drawn to pack up and move to Seattle. Having met Driscoll at a conference and talking to him on the phone a few times, he he invited us to move into his basement. Uh, and so we rolled in, because <laughs> we didn't have anywhere to, to live. Um, so we rolled in with my, I had a pickup at the time with a U-Haul trailer and we unloaded it. Uh, he had a, a good sized basement in his house near the University of Washington. And there was a few um, single guy interns living there and one of them was moving out. We, we moved into that room. It was, it was not awesome uh, for a couple, but, but it was fine. We lived there for, I can't remember a month or maybe two uh, until we found jobs and, and got an apartment. But that's how we really got to know the Driscolls. Even though he wasn't much older than most of them, he was only 26 when the church was planted. Mark took the role of pastor as spiritual father seriously, doing what he could, where he could, to help the young men in the church take steps towards more responsibility. For Tim, that meant extending an invitation to him to uproot his life and move to Seattle. Shortly after, he'd come on staff as the pastor of worship, and he'd serve in that role for more than a decade, right up until it was time to leave to launch Mars Hill Portland. Jeff Betker experienced a similar kind of investment. When Mars Hill was first being planted, Jeff was a musician, playing with a variety of punk and indie rock bands. And he lived and died by the money he could make while either on the road or working wherever and however he could when he was home. He played in a worship band at Mars Hill called Team Strike Force. And one night, they'd been asked to join Mark at an event where he was speaking. So he was getting paid by doing like uh, youth group things or whatever. At some point, that's kind of how he made some money was he'd like go talk to somebody else's youth group because Mars Hill early on wasn't making a lot of money for him or grace and so we did this big huge church retreat and team strike force went and led worship afterwards we're at some i don't know denny's or somewhere eating food and he's he's sort of railing into me why aren't you marrying her why haven't you married her here he's referring to jeff's longtime girlfriend Teresa. they've been together about eight years and i was like dude i'm broke and i don't have any money for a ring and she deserves better and like all these kind of things like that. So he literally gave me the money he made that night to buy my wife a wedding ring. Like he just handed it to me and said, now you don't have an excuse. Like stuff like that, like made me early on, like definitely be uh, loyal to him because I'm a pretty loyal person. Things like that, the acceptance of us. Uh, He also gave our bands, like we came back from a horrible tour one time and he, him, the church, like, gave me and Matt money for rent, like, because we didn't come back with any cash, and we were gone for a month and had to get back to, you know, coffee jobs or whatever we were doing, flipping bagels. I don't remember. I remember one point somewhere in the mid two thousands, 
uh, we were at a meeting somewhere. I don't even remember what it was, maybe an elders meeting. But I remember asking Mark just in passing, like, 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 man, wh- why did you, like, you just met me at a conference and we met once and we talked on the phone two or three times. Why did you, why did you invite me to come to Seattle and move into your basement? Cause you and I, cause at this point, like I was like, you know, you and I have both met a lot of guys at conferences and we haven't asked any of them to come live in our basement. Um, and, uh, and he's like, Oh bro, it, uh, yeah, I, I had a dream. God told me he was sending you here. I had a vision and, um, God told me he was sending you here and we were going to be friends and you were going to, you were going to be an important leader in the church. So I told, I invited you to come live in my basement. When people talk about what happened at Mars Hill or what happened at any church where things went so terribly wrong, someone will inevitably ask, why was it able to go on for so long? Why didn't the staff leave? Couldn't everyone see what the problems were? And from Mars Hill, at least, I think stories like these from Joel, Tim, and Jeff provide at least a partial answer. Mars Hill was where they grew into their calling and their sense of purpose as men, husbands, fathers, and pastors. Mark empowered them and invested in them and affirmed them. And there are few things in this world as powerful to young men as someone whom you respect telling you, I believe in you, and I'm excited to see what God is doing with your life. Mars Hill was where they learned to give their lives away in service to something bigger than themselves, and where they saw unbelievable things happen as thousands of people flocked to Jesus. It was where so many young men heard the call to embrace the responsibilities of adulthood, to revere marriage and pursue it. It's where they got married and had babies. It was the place they watched their kids grow up. When you consider the scope of life experienced in the span of 14, 15, or 16 years like these guys spent there, You can imagine how many inflection points, how many moments of suffering where the community gathered around you, or moments of deep and shared joy, took place inside the context of that community. Easter 2008, like the week of, Driscoll had a a last-minute idea, which is like, what if instead of doing baptisms afterwards, we do them like in the moment? This was actually a pretty big break in tradition for them. Baptism usually involved a deeply engaged conversation with a pastor to ensure that an individual understood exactly what was happening and why. Mark, though, made the case to the other pastors that baptisms in the New Testament were pretty much spontaneous. So why not just open it up? Classic lead pastor, last minute. Uh, everybody's like, ah, scrambling. When the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. Man, I was nervous. I was going to be leading worship that day. I'm just like, geez, it's going to be so lame if nobody responds. But he was pretty confident some people would respond. And good grief, it was a, it was a huge response. Brad House told me this story as well. He attended the church starting in 2000 and was on staff from 2005 to 2012. It was overwhelming. Like... We didn't have towels. We didn't have shirts. We didn't know, like, we had soaked the whole back of the stage. And we quickly realized, I mean, this is just the classic, you don't think it through. Like, they were just coming in their clothes, like, whatever they were wearing. And quickly it was like, oh, my goodness, what have we done? Uh, the, 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 the people that were helping to, like, give towels to everybody are just rushing in to cover to cover people up. We sent people to the store immediately to buy like every pair of dark colored like t-shirts and cheap shorts that we could buy and a multi 
multiple mile radius because uh, people just kept responding. So this lady who apparently had a lot of cats comes in the tank and she gets baptized and then I'm sitting in a tank covered in cat hair on the on the top of the water just like dunking the next person that came in you know and it was like it was complete insanity and it was it was beautiful there was no there's no manipulation no guile in the midst of that it was we're calling people to Jesus but it was coming so fast and it was like this is beautiful you know and you have those moments and then you're like ah oh, you know so I got yelled at in a meeting or you know, you would take that home and you'd be frustrated with it, but then you'd go, but on the whole, it's a pretty amazing week, you know, <laughs> so. We get to the end of the day, it's been super emotional. We did probably, I don't know, at least four services. Maybe it was five, I don't remember. Uh, we get to the last service of the day and the longer the service goes, the more we have to add songs. So we had like a bunch of songs picked out and then we had another list of songs like on deck to add. And I'm so I'm just, we'd gone over again. We went over at every service and I'm, I'd, we'd gone through, so many people were coming forward that we'd gone through all the songs we'd played and I'm trying to think of what we're going to play next and how to tell the band while I'm in the middle of a song. And I, I see people like waving at me and everything and um, uh, man, it's hard for me to even talk about it without getting emotional because um, uh, it was just a beautiful moment. But, but they're all waving at me and I think they're telling me to just keep going and keep playing. But finally, like somebody like comes over and is like, dude, look. All right, we got, is this the last one? Or we got more backstage? Okay. Oh! I know that one. And uh, we got to the end of the song and I realized um, my oldest daughter uh, was standing in the, in the tub. Um, she came forward, she's just turned six. She, she had responded. She was there with my sister. My wife wasn't even there. And I guess she turned to my sister and was like, I need to get baptized right now. I've been thinking about it and I've got to do it right now. And so my sister brought her up and she got all the way into the tub before I even knew what was happening because I was just trying to keep playing the songs. And so I put down my, my guitar and walked over and, and uh, uh, baptized my daughter, um, you know, over the, over the side of the tub. You want to do it? Yeah, I'll just do it over the edge here. Kenny, <laughs> uh, do you love Jesus? Why do you love Jesus? <laughs> because she's shy. <laughs> Did Jesus die for your sin? Does Jesus change your heart? Does Jesus give you love? Do you love Jesus? Well, and it's very happy for me to baptize you, my baby. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not a dry eye in place. Driscoll's there in the front row. Everybody's just crying their eyes out. and uh, It was just an amazing day. Um, and that became something we did a lot of uh, over the years and saw so many people come to Christ uh, in the midst of it all. So that that is definitely my, my number one. Uh, Mars Hill memory uh, of all time. Stories like the fall of Mars Hill are never just about the failure of one person. They're about the shattering of community, and they're about years, decades in some cases, of memories that turn from beautiful to bittersweet because of the loss. Why do you stay? Because this is the place that you found a purpose 
and a sense of calling, a sense of who you are as a man, and a pastor, and a husband, and a father. Because you hope, despite all evidence to the contrary, that you're one good conversation away from things getting back to how they used to be. Because you've given everything to this community, and in some ways, this community has given everything to you. That is why you stay. people find us. Subscriptions to CT are one of the best ways to support this kind of journalism. If you want to help us continue doing this work, consider joining today at orderct.com slash Mars Hill. You'll get your first three months free. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced, written, edited, and hosted by Mike Cosper. Joy Beth Smith is our associate producer Music, sound design, and mixing is by Kate Siefker. Our theme song is Sticks and Stones by King's Kaleidoscope. The closing song this week is Dynamite by Sandra McCracken. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Social media by Nicole Shanks. Editorial consulting by Andrea Palpent-Dilly. CT's editor-in-chief is Timothy Dalrymple. <laughs>